Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. Welcome along. This is Open Door Talks, your guide on how to thrive in the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, and this week we're joined by a brilliant sync agent and sync educator, Eric Campbell. Eric runs the sync agency Sus3 Music and runs a sync education platform, Control Camp. As a music producer and songwriter, Eric's music has been featured on Keeping Up With The Kardashians, Love & Hip Hop, The Real Housewives and many more. He's also been an on-set songwriter for TV shows including Greenleaf and Step Up High Water and he's even scored a commercial for The Rock's energy drink, Zoa. Eric shares a wealth of knowledge in this episode all about sync licensing. He talks about how to get into it and he breaks down his creative processes when he's making music for sync. He goes into his methods for referencing and he also talks about the challenges of moving to a new city and how he overcame these obstacles. He also provides some brilliant insights into networking. So if you're wondering what sync licensing is, how to get into it and how to get paid, then this one is definitely for you. Enjoy. Eric, it's great to finally meet you. Thank you for joining us. Could you give us a snapshot of who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, first, uh, thanks for having me, Lex. This is awesome. I am Eric Campbell. I'm a sync agent, which means I place uh, music for other artists into uh, TV, films, and ads. And I'm also a sync educator. So I run a sync agency called Sus3 Music, and I run a, a sync education community called Control Camp. Great. And um, whereabouts are you based? Because I can hear there's a, a little accent. <laughs> well, I'm from all over, but I'm from the East Coast of the U.S. originally. Um, but I'm currently based in Tucson, Arizona, which is on the western part of the United States. Let's start off just delving into your history. Let's go back in time. As a youngster, what were your experiences and influences of music growing up? Uh, so I grew up um, in early days of hip hop in New York City, uh, so that was a big influence on me. Just a lot of the the growth of that in the eighties and the nineties, and then I'm a musician, so I play a bunch of instruments. Um, uh, started with drums when I was really young, probably like six years old, and piano, and then throughout our middle school and high school took on additional instruments. So I played drums, the piano, violin, uh, saxophone, and then as I got older, I kind of shifted into music production and songwriting, uh, and then eventually landed um, into focusing that on uh, pursuing sync opportunities with TV and film. Wow. Okay. That's uh, well, we have something in common there. I used to play the drums and the violin actually as a, as a youngster. Oh, nice. And then discovered the world of electronic music as a teenager and didn't really look back from there. What was your introduction? How did you get into making music with the DAW? So I was always curious about I mean, anything music. I was jamming with bands and um, an uncle bought me 
a synthesizer. Oh, this must have been sometime in the 80s sometime. Um, but bought me a synthesizer. And um, that was my first introduction to just kind of creating some of the ideas in my head. But I've honestly always had like melodies and I would hear stuff on the radio and kind of hear how I would want to do make similar um, music. And so it, once I got to a place where I could get equipment, I just put like all my money and time into kind of building out and learning you know, just how music production work, the studio setting, because I could hear it. I just had to figure out how to make it. Who were the other artists that you looked up to at that time? And what was it about them that inspired you? It was so many. Um, like a lot of early New York hip hop. So you've got groups like Run DMC and LL Cool J and Public Enemy and those. But then also um, my dad was a huge blues fan. So we had an amazing like vinyl collection of Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King and um, just a lot of the kind of classic American blues artists and a lot of the soul from Motown. So I grew up listening to a lot of that. And then I played, you know, as a drummer, I played in all kinds of bands. So I played in rock bands. I played in a high school's jazz band. And so um, I, you know, and then playing saxophone, I got exposed to like Charlie Parker and Grover Washington Jr. And so I was able, and then I played violin. So I was in, you know, New York City orchestras playing all kinds of classical. So I was really able to, to be exposed really young to a lot of different genres and um, got to analyze just how they all work together and influenced each other. So um, I'm able to, it, it, it kind of, I'm, it made me curious about a lot of genres and I'm, I'm able to pull from a lot of different influences. I mean, it's such a fantastic time in New York, not just with hip hop, but with, you know, house and as those scenes were, were emo emerging and evolving and developing. Yes. Becoming more mainstream. Obviously, technology was changing. Yes. Were you working in music as you developed into your 20s and stuff? Not necessarily. I um, I went on a long route. I actually um, didn't go to college for music. I went to study electrical engineering. My parents kind of talked me out of majoring in music at the last minute. So I ended up doing uh, an engineering degree to try to get a stable job. Uh, and then after graduating, I knew I didn't want to work in engineering. I knew I wanted to try to get back to music. So I kind of searched around for a while. Um, I had a couple of a hip hop group I was a part of that we were trying to like get a deal. And I was still learning production on my own. But eventually I ended up taking a job with a consulting firm uh, and doing like IT um, systems development and project management. But all the while I was still doing music on the side, trying different ventures, building a studio in my house, trying to launch a record label and signing some artists. So I, I've tried my hand at a number of different things. And it wasn't until later when I eventually um, relocated to Atlanta, Georgia, where my original focus was going to be writing music, trying to write songs, focus on the songwriting side, and also pitching those songs to other artists. So that was the path I was really trying to focus on. I, I could produce, but it just, there was a lot more demand for the songwriters at the time. 
and I wanted to try to get on some big records with some artists. And so I moved to Atlanta to try to focus on that and, and had a struggle actually, um, you know, trying to break into that field. I ended up with a couple of decent placements, but not worth all the, I mean, for the number of demos I actually turned in and the number of pitches I actually made, it really, um, really is not what I could, would call a success. And so um, that ultimately led me to shifting to looking at sync licensing. Clearly, it's really difficult when you move somewhere new to really build up, you know, your contact list to really get to know the people. And I think sync licensing is is quite a common term nowadays, but I'm not sure back then if it was as well known. Was there something that happened that led you down that path that made you see that this was a possible career path for you? Or how did you really get into it? So at the time, I was trying to, I was curious about how people got their music into ads because you could hear the music everywhere. I just didn't know how the business worked. And I was having a hard time in Atlanta finding anyone to like, who would, you know, who understood how it worked themselves to share it with me. Um, But then I came across an organization here in the U.S. called Taxi. And they used to run, they would run a music conference every year. And they were really, at the time, like, you know, now there's a plethora of like, sync education courses and master classes and YouTube videos. But at the time there really wasn't anything. So taxi was the only game in town in terms of education. And so I would go to their conferences uh, and then they had a setup where you could go to the conferences, study under other songwriters and producers, just, and, you know, hear from people who ran music libraries just to understand how that world worked. And you could also pitch your music you could get feedback on the music that you were pitching, you know, to say why something might work for a commercial or why it might not work. Uh, and so that really helped me because when the feedback was invaluable, you know, prior to that, I was submitting a lot of music and, you know, with in the artist world, you submit music and it, someone either takes it or they don't, you don't really get any feedback in terms of, you know, you know, if you work on this or work on this, you might have a better chance of getting a placement in the future. So, uh, that feedback was really helpful. And uh, that led to me getting a lot of relationships with music libraries, which was really the start of, you know, me then getting placements and, you know, really building a career in in sync. Was that the only thing you did? Or were there other things that you did or other courses that you took to improve your skills at that early stage? Not in the in the early stage it was primarily all taxi. Later on, I've I've taken tons of courses and classes and studied under different people. But initially, it was just that one conference. They would have a conference every year. Be pretty detailed. They bring in a lot of. Um, you'd hear from composers who were doing music full time. You'd hear from songwriters who were getting placements. You'd hear from music library owners. So it was a lot of information, and then. They had a YouTube channel at the time, you know, nobody really was doing, you know, education on YouTube, music education as much on YouTube then. So they were kind of pioneers in that sense. Um, So I would, I would, so watching the YouTube videos and then this is before Discord. So they had a news group, I think it was called bulletin group. I can't remember what they were called, but um, they had an online kind of bulletin group that you could join. And uh, so there were a lot of, 
that one organization had a lot of different mechanisms for just getting information and then you could put your music and see if it landed. And then once you got the relationship with the music library, then you're hearing from them directly about what they want. You're getting feedback from them directly. So um, it really kicked off. Um, it started me down the path of just kind of learning how the industry worked and building my relationships within the industry. Were you able to quit your day job at that point or was it was it a longer process after that? I actually left my job before I moved to Atlanta, uh, which was a crazy thing to do because I didn't have things, you know, I didn't have things in place. So by the time I was in Atlanta, I was already kind of like trying to, you know, doing kind of hustles on the side, work doing, you know, independent production for artists and, you know, trying to sell tracks and songs and things like that. But ultimately, I ended up... Um, doing music lessons and finding like more like interim stable income in that. And I ended, I was teaching my own music lessons and then um, doing them, teaching the lessons in people's homes. I was, I would go to, to students' homes and teach lessons there. And that actually started doing very well. I actually ended up hiring a couple of different other teachers to help manage um, the client load that I had and I did that while pursuing the sync licensing. Um, and I didn't stop the music lesson practice probably till like 2019, uh, right before the pandemic um, started. Um, so I wasn't fully doing just the licensing. I was doing music full time, but it was music licensing and um, music lessons. And then it wasn't 100% music licensing to write about 2019. What was the catalyst that led you down the road of sync licensing? The biggest thing that made me look for this is not being able to get the headway with the artist placements that I was hoping for. And that made me say, okay, what else is out there? Because I, I couldn't get the relationships established in Atlanta that I was looking for. I wasn't, I was getting, you know, I got a cool placement, but it, not, they weren't coming in. I didn't have a publishing deal set up and all the things that you would need to really have success in that world. I wasn't, I wasn't getting enough momentum there. And so it made me look for what else was out there. Um, and then kind of finding taxi around that time opened up the opportunity to say, okay, what is this sync licensing and, and how does it work? Yeah. And I love the fact that you didn't have a backup plan. It's quite a scary thing to not have a day job and I wouldn't encourage, you know, or discourage people to do it. I'm going to sit on the fence. I'm not here, you know, to give any kind of career advice to anyone. But having said that, we, you know, I spoke to a singer recently who, Camden Cox, who said, you know, she didn't have a plan B and so she just had to make it happen. And there's something about that cushion of, of a backup plan that people can sometimes lean on that sometimes means they don't really pursue their dreams because they have a fallback plan and you not having that fallback plan you didn't have a plan b you were just right i'm going to make the music thing happen and you know clearly it has happened you just made it happen you explored different options and you know you created some different revenue streams and when things didn't work you looked in other places so i you know i really love your mentality and your approach to it Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, I, it was very 
there's a lot of turmoil in that process, which is why I don't recommend it to anyone. I think you do. I don't know that I would do it any differently, but I don't feel comfortable recommending it just because, you know, it, there was a, a lot. I mean, I, I got evicted while I was in Atlanta. I tried, you know, moving around to different places, trying to make things work. Like there was just so much turmoil um, within like, you know, my, me and my, you know, the divisions between me and my family it was just like a lot of, a lot of stress to get through, especially the, the earlier time, uh, you know, in this. So, uh, it was, it was my, it was my, dis, it was my decision, but even in the process, I questioned that decision so many times as, as I was going through it. I can imagine that, that was my next question is what, what were the challenges you faced and how did you overcome them? Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, it was a lot of financial challenges. Primarily I didn't have enough income saved up before I moved to Atlanta. And I also didn't realize you, know, you go to a new city, you don't know how to break into things, but Atlanta is a city where it's very hard to network if you don't have income because everybody networks in the clubs, they network out, you know, nightlife is where, you know, all the meetings happen. And so you, you have to be able to regularly be out paying for parking, paying for drinks, you know, uh, keeping your attire up. Like it's actually a whole, like just, just outside of making music and paying for studio time and paying for wherever you record or the technology, you know, the social aspect um, is, can be expensive and draining all in itself. So uh, I think that was the biggest challenge. And then, it was alleviated somewhat once I started getting my music lessons going because that helped because I could set my own hours. And so I could say, oh, I'm only going to teach today from 8 a.m. to noon or I want to have the whole morning and just teach when, you know, kids get off of school. So from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the afternoon. And then I got the whole day in the night to myself and I could figure out how much I needed to make just to make, you know, enough to make ends meet, but still really protect my time that was really helpful. And so I think there's even more opportunity to do that now when you can, you can Uber, you can DoorDash, you can do so many other things on your own time outside of like having to work eight hours, you know, five days a week. I think there's a lot more options now for people. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from that period of time? Well, one, I do think that I have learned that at least, well, this maybe just was in Atlanta, but I think when you go into a lot of people want to move to music cities to make things happen. And I think it's important to at least get some insight in terms of how networking and relationships happen. And every city is different. Like um, here in, in the U.S., there's a totally different way you would maneuver in, say, Nashville versus how you might maneuver in Los Angeles versus how you might would maneuver in Atlanta or New York. So it's very important to, to talk to people who are there and just understand not just on the musical side, but, you know, relationship, how, how do relationships happen? Atlanta is very much an area where people work with people that they know. And a lot of, especially people who are from Atlanta have relationships with people that they grew up with went to high school with, went to middle school with. And so you tend to need to be very strategic to figure out how to break into those very deeply entrenched 
circles with people, you know, working with people that they trust, that they have a long time experience with and uh, may not always be open to new strangers um, coming in, you know, into town. And so um, that requires some, some, some strategy. And so I, I think the lessons of one thinking more strategic about relationships and not just the craft of music, which is what all I was focused on in the very beginning. I just went, I figured if I was good enough, everything else would kind of take care of itself. And I wasn't really, you know, if I was doing it all again, I would be much more conscious of also being smart about how to build relationships. And at that same time, I think I also learned a lot about marketing and branding and being just as focused on that for myself. How do I continually put my name out? How do I, how do, you know, it's a little easier now with social media back, you know, then you didn't have that, but still, even with social media, you have to be strategic and conscious of how you're using it so that you're putting your name out there in a way that, you know, is in alignment with, with the goals that you're hoping to achieve. And so I would definitely be more, focused on that as opposed to having 90% of my energy working on craft. It might be more like 50% on craft and 25% on branding and 25% on relationships and really putting the time, you know, making sure that I can be in a place where I can be out every night. If it's Atlanta being out every night in a in a club or whatever, if it's Nashville, making sure that I'm at all the open mics every night and maybe jamming with some of the musicians and those songwriters, but maybe I'm doing one, two or three songwriter open nights every week, like just really being strategic about really being out there and not just locked in the studio writing and, you know, demoing and thinking that that'll be enough. That's really valuable because I think wherever you are is strategy is really important isn't it and it's not just making music it's a whole like you said there's these different aspects which really make up the entire business of whatever you whatever it is you're creating and you know the persona or the musician that you want to be uh, whether that's as a fully fledged artist or as a dj exactly or you know if you're just going to focus on sync some people focus on all of them uh, some people just focus on engineering but you know whatever it is just focusing on your craft basically isn't enough these days, is it? Exactly right. Exactly right. So I think we're going to go back and forth a little bit. I'd love to find out more about your creative process and some of the successes you've had. I'd also like to spend a bit of time on a Sync 101, really, breaking it down for everyone. So let's go from there. So can you explain exactly what is Sync licensing and why should independent artists care about it? Sync licensing in its heart is just music that is attached to an, another audio-visual component. So if you have a film, a film has underscore music that's playing you know, under the dialogue. Um, there might be music in transition between scenes, or there might be a whole song that's playing while the visual is happening, and even, even if there's no dialogue. So take a car driving through the countryside, Maybe there's a big classical piece that's happening while that's it's playing, or you can go into television and take a big show like Grey's Anatomy that has made its mark um, where at the end of every episode, there's a big emotional montage and some really big, you know, singer songwriter song that's um, meant to really push the emotion of that moment. And so, commercials, television, film, video games, 
uh, all of those mechanisms, all of those types of media uh, use music to, to strengthen, you know, whatever emotion is happening on the screen. And so in order for them to use that music that uh, somebody else owns, they have to get a license and technically definitely at least within us law and i think worldwide law in different regions that license is different from say a license to perform music you know or a cover song in a venue or the license to do a cover and stream it on spotify um that audiovisual license is its, is its own legal entity and so it's called a synchronization license because you are synchronizing the music to a visual picture. And so we always just say sync for short, sync license for short. The people who are making those, that form of media, television, you know, TV shows, adverts, games, where do they find the music to put onto their visual media? There's a number of different ways they can do that. Um, so a lot of times, um, and it depends on the aspect. So if you're a film director, you might hire a composer that's going to create the score for your film and you can find those composers through your own relationships, or, um, you might work with an agent that, you know, just represents composers. If you are a television production company, you might connect with a music library that houses a big catalog of songs. You might work with a sync agent that represents different artists and you know, also has a, cat a catalog of music that can be available uh, for license. You might reach out to, to record labels or publishing companies because you want big records that are recognizable and known in your film. So you might want a song from Beyonce or Taylor Swift or somebody, you know, major, cause you want that branding on your, um, in your project. So, um, between music libraries, publishers, record labels, um, and then there, you know, nowadays there are some internet service companies that are also providing, um, access to catalogs of music. Uh, there's a number of places you can go to find the music and then also license uh, the music that you find. Got that. Okay, cool. And how does someone who makes music, an independent artist, how does someone unknown, should we say, or someone who's just starting out in this world, how do they get their music into those, the music libraries, to the sync agents, to the publishing companies? Uh, those all very different um, avenues, depending on the company. Some companies post opportunities online now and so you can kind of go online and submit music for cons consideration so um some that you know so you can always look at a company's website um you take some research to find like who the music libraries and who the sync agencies are but once you find them some of their websites do have information like you know we may only open up submissions a certain time of the year to to open up to new composers or if they don't have that, you can at least get contact information and try to do a cold email or try to connect with them on a LinkedIn or on Instagram on that type. So there's, there's different ways and it's not always set in stone. Um, 
I, the way I created Sus3 Music and Control Camp, Sus3 Music, the agency, we source all of our music from the Control Camp community, which is open and free to anyone to join. So anyone can go to Control Camp and uh, sign up and take our free sync course and then uh, then submit music to any of the opportunities. Uh, but every company is uh, tends to be different, but a lot of them do have online processes now. Can you walk us through what a typical sync deal looks like? Are there any key components that artists should be aware of? couple of different things. If you're working with a library or an agency, then you're going to sign a deal with that library or agency to represent your music. It won't necessarily be a license for a particular show. It gives them access to act as you know your third-party agent so that they could pitch your music to TV shows, ads, films, etc. And so you'll sign a deal with those, with that entity. And usually they can be just kind of two formats. There are exclusive deals and non-exclusive deals. So the exclusive deal says that I am the only one that can represent this song or represent you as an artist. And so it can be exclusive to represent you as an artist. Like some publishing companies are set up like that, that they're the only ones representing your body of work. Um, more general, more likely within libraries and agencies, they are agreeing to represent particular songs in your catalog, um, which means you could have other songs that are represented by other agencies or entities. Um, and so for that song, they might, you might have an exclusive agreement, which says they're the only ones that can pitch that material, or it can be a non-exclusive agreement, which says that we can pitch this song, but other agencies can also pitch uh, this song as well. And you can have the same song represented by multiple parties. And so usually the agreement will speak to exclusivity, not you know whether, whether it's exclusive or non-exclusive. It'll also be for a certain length of time. So this says we represent this song for one year, at which point you can sign it to someone else. Uh, we represent it for two years, five years, or we represent it in perpetuity, which means for forever we will be the representative for this song. And all those deal terms um, exist. And then the other thing is what their commission or um, um, what portion of... Uh, so if there is a sync fee, there is uh, the, your agreement will state how much of that sync fee goes to your rep, whether that's a library or an agent, and how much goes to you. Um, it also will speak about publishing. If there if there's any back end publishing involved, how much of that does does your rep or library take any of that publishing, or do you retain all of your publishing? Um, so commission fee. Um, publishing term exclusivity those are usually all spelled out in the agreement great so yeah let's jump into the numbers what kind of revenue can an artist realistically expect from a sync licensing agreement and yeah what are the typical percentages that the agent or the library will take um we'll talk about percentages first that can vary from as little as um 15 to 20 percent of the sync fee um, I've seen as high as 50%. Um, so I'd say between 15 and 50%, um, of the sync fees that come in, um, some, you have sync agencies that take zero publishing. Like we don't take any 
publishing where we are a commission only agent. Um, whereas more music libraries tend to take 50% of, it used to be, they tend to be 50% across the board, 50% of it. This is a music library I'm referring to. They tend to be 50% of the sync fee and then 50% of the publishing, which means they're usually taking the publisher's share of the, of the publishing. And then the writer usually keeps the writer's share. And this is usually, you find exceptions. There are some cases where um, they, you know, they may only, they may split the publisher's share so that the artist keeps half of that. And then the artist retains all of the writer's share and some where the publisher tries to take some of the writer's share in certain cases, even though that tends to be frowned upon um, uh, within the industry. And so as far as numbers, they are really all over the place. So you can get, uh, you can go from a, um, a, a placement that has no money up front and is only back end, um, meaning that you're only getting your royalties. So maybe it's a reality show um, on Bravo or something that you know may not have any upfront money, but uh, it airs a lot, and so the back ends are pretty decent. And you might, you know, just off of the one show, you might get a few hundred to a thousand dollars every quarter um, for years. Um, based on it airing on that show. And, um, and then there are, you know, typically for a TV show placement, it could be, you know, $500 for a placement up to five grand for a placement on a television show where um, an advertising commercial can be a thousand to $2,500 but they can, it really is a sky's the limit. Like, especially if you have a brand or you're a big artist with a big following, then getting 50 K to, to a comfortable six figures is not unheard of um, for an advertising commercial. And you have other things like um, television promos and movie trailers, which tend to be big budget sync opportunities. So one indie artist, very feasible to get $50,000, um, for a movie trailer and um i mean that fifty thousand dollars tends to cover both whoever owns the master side of the recording and the publishing so if you're the sole writer and, and you produced it then it's all yours but if you work with a producer or if you cut a deal with an engineer that said hey you know you mix this record and i give you 10% of the master recording, then you've got all whatever agreements and splits that you created all come out of those sync fees. So whether it's a $500 sync fee or a $50,000 sync fee, your splits are affected, you know, in both in both scenarios. How important then is it in having a big following on social media or being a, should we say an established artist of some stature? How important is it to get your music placed in those spaces? I don't think it's uh, super important in terms of getting placements. I think it's very important to get the higher dollar placement. So I think your brand dictates um, how the song, how much the song is valued or how the song is valued. Um, so you and I could write the exact same song if I am an indie artist that no one's ever heard of and I have, you know, never done any releases and have no following on TikTok and I write an amazing song. 
maybe I get a thousand dollars for that song, but you could have the exact same song. And if you've got, you know, a million monthly listeners on Spotify and you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands, a million people following you on social media, um, then you could take that same song and you might get 25 or 50 or 75 K for the exact same, the exact same song because, um, the brand who, um, the big type of brands who have that budget and a lot, that kind of budget for their ads, they are looking for artists that have a following. They want to be associated, you know, they, they want to be associated with They want a, a certain association with the brand. And so ideally everybody, every brand would license a Beyonce song or a Taylor Swift song or some, you know, a high caliber song. Um, because, you know, why wouldn't you want a big popular song from a big popular artist to be associated with your clothing line or your car company or, you know, whatever you're promoting, but they don't always have the seven figures it would take to get, you know, the Beyonce or the Taylor Swift song if they're available to begin with. So they're looking for the next best thing, you know, can I get another artist who may not be at that caliber, but still does have some name recognition or singing a song that people might recognize or, or what have you. And, and then, you know, every market, their budget marketing is so big. They may not have that for every, every commercial. So they know they need to do commercials. So maybe that opens up more opportunities for indie artists that, you know, for this stream of commercials we're doing, we really only have, $5,000. We can't get anybody major for that kind of money. So that opens up opportunities for um, a lot of independent artists that might have good music, um, but don't have the name recognition. I'm interested in the process because which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Are these people looking through music that's already been made or are they sending out briefs for original tracks? I think it, it happens organically in different ways. Um, they might be listening to music that's already made in terms of things that they're already familiar with. But I think, so if you just take ads, um, when at the point where they're discussing the visuals for an ad and that they're, they're trying to tell a story. So the story could be, you know, someone running through a field and, um, um, you know, they're painting this whole thing of green trees, green field and car running across the grass or Jeep commercial or what have you there as they're creating these visuals, they're thinking of what the soundtrack sounds like. And they might be thinking of, um, you know, a main artist, you know, a big artist that, Oh, I totally hear this song because they're, mu they're music fans as well. So they might be thinking of a particular song and often they are, or at least a particular vibe. And so that leads to the conversation of, you know, how much would it cost to get this particular song versus how what our budget is? They also they're going in with a particular budget usually, and so that budget and the energy that they want dictates: do we go for a major artist or do we go for it or for an independent artist? Are we going for the, a known song or are we going for an original song with a similar vibe? A lot of that is dictated by what their vision is and the budget that they're working with. What are some of the common mistakes that you see artists making in the sync world? What should they be doing to avoid those mistakes? I don't know if it's common mistakes, but I think one 
I think many artists are just not familiar with sync licensing as a path. And so a lot of times when you're in the songwriting process, you are just writing music for your fans or the fan base that you're trying to grow. And so, you know, your music, you want your music to air in clubs or you want it to play in festivals or you want it to stream on certain playlists. And so you, that's all your focus is. And so I find a lot of artists don't think about sync until after they have a song ready to be released. And they're like, Oh, I wonder if I can get this song, you know, on a TV or in a commercial where I think the reality is that commercials, television, films, they're an end customer, just like your fan base is an end customer. And they have different needs, different requirements. And sometimes it's very hard to force what you've made for your fans to work for a totally different end customer. You know, Uh, it's kind of like, if your toys are, if you run a big toy store and you have products that work for kind of toddlers and infants, and then all of a sudden you realize that there's a market for high schoolers, you can't take all like the teddy bears and the the stuff that toddlers like and then try to sell it to high schoolers. You've got to make a new products. For, if you want to get to high schoolers, you got to make products that are geared towards them and still sell the products to the toddlers. So I think you got to think of film television as as its own product and maybe there's some overlap but really you have to understand what what this group over here the the tv film and ads and even within themselves they're totally different what works for tv doesn't necessarily work for ads what works for ads doesn't necessarily work for video games and what works for tv ads and video games almost definitely does not work for trailers they all have their own you know requirements they're all their own customers. And so the more you can learn about all these spaces and learn about what works in those spaces, the more you can say, oh, well, this kind of fits with what I've been working on already. Um, and so I can, you know, my, I know my music is a better fit for TV than, say, ads. And so let me see if I can pitch it for some TV shows. Or you can say, huh, this is a little different, but I can totally, as I'm working on these 10 songs for my album, I don't have any problem throwing in two that might work really well in these ads as well, because they're not so different from what I'm making. And so I think more artists don't know enough to think through that process up front before they start creating the music. I see that as you're having some kind of end goal when you're going in that creative space. Oh, this, so today I'm going to try and make an ad. I'm going to try and make a track that might fit on a bank advert or um, today I'm going to write a song that might go in some kind of scary movie trailer or something with that end goal in mind. I'm imagining that would be exactly a useful practice. Exactly. I think other creatives do this. So if you're writing a book, you're already thinking about, okay, you know, am I writing something that can also be remade into a movie or a television series? Am I writing something that's going to end up, you know, um, pick because it's going to be picked up by a publisher and then distributed and you know which shelf on the bookstores would it probably fit in I think you think about those type of things and other creative forms and so music's no different could you walk us through then the creative process for yourself of making a track specifically for sync and what are the elements that you focus on to make it appealing for those spaces that's a good question so for me, um, 
a lot of what I do starts with a brief or request that I've, I've gotten. Um, so somebody's looking for something very specific. And then it also, um, if it doesn't start from a brief, it starts from my own experience of knowing the types of music that's regularly being requested. And so I'm trying to add more of that style into my catalog. Once I know that I'm, what I'm creating is for a particular type of ad or movie trailer or television show, then my usual first step is to find song references that have or already worked in those spaces. So if I know I'm making a hip hop song track that's going to be used in an ad, in a commercial, I usually start with like finding a bunch of hip hop songs and tracks that have already been used in commercials and kind of creating a like a reference playlist. I'm really big on playlists and references and so um, I want to make sure that what I make, I'm not trying to copy any of what's out there. What I'm trying to do is if all those songs that have existed fit into a playlist, I want to make a song that will also fit in that play that same playlist. You know, I want to make the next song that would be in the next version of that playlist. So having references where I can, I get really analytical with music, um, probably more than, like music is creative, but for me, it's also analysis. I think it's, um, I need to, so I'm looking at listening to these songs and I'm understanding what tempo ranges these songs will fit in. Are they mostly major keys or minor keys? Is it real simple production with, you know, three, you know, an 808, uh, a drum loop and a couple of synths, or is it really, really heavy production with like live instrumentation on top of the drum tracks and are they bringing in brass like the, I'm, I'm analyzing that because that all tells me what I need to be making what the common threads are between what's typically um, used so I spend a good amount of time uh, analyzing what's there and then I start creating usually I'll create my instrumental first and then um, once I have the instrumentals that feel like they would work in that playlist then it's time to build the song on top of that. And do you ever have a visual element in mind? Because I get the significance of reference tracks and that's you know one a game-changing technique that I discovered, I guess, a few, you know, a while a while back with my own music writing and production, with what you're doing and sync licensing. Do you ever think about visual references as well? I do um I do some I think the audio references are now stronger. I found it's interesting. I find that um, when I was back pitching music for artists, I would totally envision the club. Like I want to see people mm-hmm. dancing in my head mm-hmm. to whatever I'm making, or I would envision um, the music video, like, you know, like the certain references. I think with commercials and TVs, because they're all over the place, sometimes it's a little harder to keep those, images in my head so i tend to go with more of this this the song references but if i know like okay i i'm doing this bluesy rock track and i know that this could work for you know a whiskey commercial i may try to kind of picture what the standard one is and try to kind of hear what i'm doing over it but if i've picked my references right then what i'm doing is already going to is going to fall in line with with whatever that visual is yeah that's fascinating 
And do you, in your experience, do certain genres have a better chance of getting sync deals? Sometimes, yes, but I think um, sync, like everything else, uses a lot and also has a lot of trends. And so I think it's important to stay on top of trends because, um, like, for example, five to eight years ago, you could hardly find hip hop in advertisement commercials. And now every commercial is is a rap track or a hip hop track. You Papa John's or pizza brand, doesn't matter what it is, like AT&T, a telephone company, like they all have like hip hop background tracks. And so those things, I think, shift and, and change. I think what's important is the same way, like if you're going to make music, you would listen to lots of music and playlists. And that's how you kind of inform your sense of taste. I think watching a lot of ads, watching TV, but with an ear for the music, because most times we tend to block out the music and we're not really paying attention to it. So getting the mind shift where you actually are focusing on listening to the music that's used in those scenes and um, the music that you're hearing in films, both during the film as well as in, you know, in the end credits, helps you know what's trending right now and what's what's in demand. But seeing a lot of hip-hop right now, pop is always there. But then you also have what we call like indie rock or blues rock, which has always been popular on like car and truck commercials and um, certain you know reality shows. And there's always the singer-songwriter, you know, just a voice in a guitar, a voice in a piano that works really well on television um, and in some commercials. But you you really do hear across, I mean, across the gamut, all genres kind of being represented. Anything that struggles to be represented is probably like American country music. Don't hear as much of that on TV or in commercials compared to other genres, but but you will hear some and like everything is represented at some point. And you mentioned referencing. Can you explain exactly how you break down tracks and what are the elements that you look out for? So for me, I, if I get a reference track, I'm going to analyze what, what the tempo is. I'm going to look at what's in the production, whether the production is minimal or really complex um looking at the arrangement of the song. Um, is it a short introduction? Is it a eight bar verse, a 16 bar verse? You know, how, is is the track dynamic? Or is it like more loop based all the way through? Or is it like changing and growing and evolving? So analyzing all those things helps tell me how I need to approach my track. In terms of building your brand, is it similar to being an artist where it's useful to be known for one genre or with sync licensing, is it a bit of a free for all and you can, you can switch genres and you can switch and switch from trailers to adverts, to TV shows, to pop, to rock, to hip hop. How does that work? That's a good question. Um, I think as you, so there are certainly artists that are, have become known as like sync artists where they just focus on making music for sync and they're all over the place. They might do hip hop track today. They might work on a a rock track tomorrow. And I've done a lot of that, especially in my early career. I have tracks that have been on TV that are kind of alternative rock, like, you know, the the black keys kind of sound, which was really popular for TV in like the early 2000. Um, And then lots of hip hop tracks, R and B, like, 
I, as a producer creator, I could be who does, who's not focused on being a branded artist. I had the luxury of being all over the place and just making whatever I wanted. But I do think that um, as an independent artist, it's you don't want the sync stuff to conflict with your brand because your brand actually increases the va potential value of the sync placements. And so you anything that strengthens that brand is going to help build up your sync opportunities. So I think you want to be strategic in how you're presenting yourself, what genres you're writing for, and not doing things that may not fit within the brand that you're working for or that would confuse the marketplace um, about your brand just for the sake of getting a sync because I think that could work against you. Yeah, I get that. And then what would you say the best approach is for artists to start conversations and to develop relationships with the agents and with the music libraries? I think the first thing is actually assessing your own catalog for what's syncable and getting that ear for kind of how sync works. And so I always recommend people even before trying to pitch their music, um, um, spending some time developing a sync ear and you can do that by you know spending a lot more time watching ads and watching tv shows there's a couple of websites we always recommend uh, there's a site called tunefind.com and another site called ispot.tv tunefind shows a lot of television shows it's kind of like a wikipedia for tv shows um, for music used in TV shows. So for a lot of episodes, it just lists the music used in that episode and you can kind of go listen to it. And so I would spend, I always have artists spend time on that, like find shows that you like or that you think, you know, would work for you and really listen to the music used in that show and, you know, find the stuff that feels like your ballpark or your wheelhouse. Uh, and then do the same thing with the ads, spend time every day on iSpot TV and just, watch all the new commercials that are coming out and take notes of when you hear stuff that feels like what that's close to what you either do already or, or can do or are willing to do. And then, um, as you're getting those things, cause then you can approach supervisors or libraries or agencies with some knowledge that says, Hey, my music, um, sounds really sounds a lot like what you hear at the end of Grey's Anatomy, you know, big emotional singer songwriter. I have, I have tons of those songs. Can I send you some of those? And then a supervisor is like, Oh, I'm, I'm always looking for that. Send that to me as opposed to just a general, Hey, I'd like to get my music sync. Can I send you some music? And which without any context of, you know, are you good for ads? Are you good for movie trailers? Are you good for, you know, do you have music that sounds like, television promos. And so most people are sending that and sending, reaching out, hoping the supervisor agent will tell them where they fit. And that's usually because they haven't done the work themselves to find out if they fit anywhere or that they also says that you, you don't understand what's out there. And so you, you know, I doubt that you're making music that can fit in any of those things because you don't know what's there to begin with. So can you tell us about your education platform, Control Camp? So Control Camp, um, which is spelled C-T-R-L, Camp, like Control, Alt, Delete. Um, Control Camp is a sync education community. And the purpose is to um, 
really teach anyone who wants to learn about music for film or music for television and ads. We want to make the information available to anyone interested in learning. Uh, this is sync licensing I find for myself has been a very kind of gate kept industry where the people who've had the knowledge have always kind of kept it close to the chest. And um, it's been very, I found it very challenging to find the information on how this industry worked. And, you know, it's taken me over a decade to, to learn and pull information from different places and really get the comprehensive scope of knowledge that I have now in terms of understanding differences between how movie trailer works and custom music for ads and uh, scoring films like there's so many different lanes and they all have their own body of knowledge and they all have their own entry points and um there's not very challenge it was for me very challenging to put all that together and so i'm very motivated to make it less challenging for um for other artists, producers, and uh, musicians, because one, it shouldn't be this hard, and two, we're in, we're in a time where the industry needs to open up to a much more diverse body of creators, and we can't open, we can't have access or open up access without freely sharing the information. And so, um, for me, I think all this came together over the course of the pandemic, the app Clubhouse was really popular at that time. And some a friend and I got on the app and was just checking it out. But people were doing like kind of their own audio podcast TED Talks uh, within the app. And it was, you know, very popular. And so we got in and just on a lark just started sharing how we got our sync placements and, you know, opening up kind of rooms within the app to whoever was in there. Maybe the first time we went in there, it might've been like 10 or 15 people um, that would show up in this room as that we would label, you know, we're sharing how we get our sync placements. Come on in and listen. Uh, and, you know, 10 people would walk in at the start, but then by the time, you know, we were talking for an hour, there might be 50 or 60 people who randomly just kind of walked into the room. And so we really quickly started finding that, there was like a lot of interest around this um, because in a matter of days, we went from speaking to 10 to 50 people to speaking to a hundred to a thousand people yeah, um, in, a, in the order of hundreds in the room. And those people then would follow us on Instagram. And so my own Instagram, which was stuck at like a thousand followers for years, you know, probably doubled in like a month time and it just really clicked to me like wow people are really hungry for this info in this particular mechanism this app this is a great time to share because it's just really doing a lot to drive followers um, and engagement and so we really dug in there and then ended up formalizing it to you know call it control camp and then even after kind of clubhouse kind of came and went. I mean, it's still there, but it doesn't have the traction it had. But once we start, as we started building up our own following, I started moving my engagement from, you know, from Clubhouse to TikTok and Instagram. Um, I built controlcamp.com, the website, which is also like a private community. So there's a membership community you can join. The membership is free to anyone who wants to join. 
Um, uh, I built the course, our very first course, the Sync 101, where anybody can come and learn how to license their music. I made that absolutely free. And so really important for me to build out a whole ecosystem um, where anyone can learn, where cost is not um, a restriction. And then I'm building other mechanisms around it that will help finance the growth of the community and, you know, sustery the agency and all of that. But price doesn't have to be a barrier for anyone to kind of learn about how this field works. What a brilliant story. That was such a great way that you have grown that. Is there a particular mindset or philosophy that you attribute to your success in the sync world? Uh, good question. I think for me personally, I mean, I feel like the success success is variable and always growing. And, you know, I'm always, I'm always been driven as I still have a lot of goals and things I need to achieve. And so that's probably part of it, just the the constant drive and then never being satisfied, uh, definitely part of it. And then also for me, I'd say the constant learning, like, you know, even within sync, because there's so many different avenues, I think the curiosity to understand how each of these avenues works has helped me to then figure out how to strategize where I want to be in all of all of these and you have to have the knowledge first before you can strategize so that curiosity to get the knowledge i think has been critical for me yeah and that's something that you you know said you had from a young age right you've always had that inquisitive nature yes exactly rejection is obviously a part of the industry whether you're an all-out artist or whether you're just focusing on sync licensing how have you dealt with no's in your career and what advice would you give to musicians who face rejection? I think rejection is hard at any stage. Um, I still don't like uh, getting rejected or sending out music and not landing or getting it back. But I also feel like I've developed very early on. I developed a thick skin that allowed me to put myself in a position to be rejected over and over and over again. And I find that that's the challenging part for artists. It's not so the rejection never goes away. The question is how comfortable can we get with it? Like, you know, you know, it's going to sting, but you know, it's like being stung and then putting your arm back out to get stung again, I think takes a certain inner strength because all those rejections, I feel like lead, all those rejections lead to the success. I think it's, I think that's what makes, I've read a lot of book about books about sales and marketing and every book on sales is, you know, the success of the salesperson is based on their willingness to put themselves out and potentially have a door slammed in their face, have somebody, you know, if you, you know, back in the day they used to sell door to door. So they would sell, you know, take vacuum cleaners and knock on, pull up to a neighborhood and knock on every door in the neighborhood. And the successful salesman expected 20, 30 or 40 rejections before they got, you know, before they made their sale. And so the mindset was to embrace the 20, 30 or 40 rejections, because if they could chalk those 40 off, then that the one that was going to land into a sale was going to be, you know, at the end of that. And so for the people who 
are afraid of the rejections or 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 you know feel fragile or don't want to have someone you know slam a door in their face they won't make it far enough to get to the one that's sold so i think for the to the one that's going to sell so i think for me advising any artist developing that thick skin and that saying when somebody says i'm not going to take this song that it's not um, a rejection of you personally, not a rejection of the baby that you created. You know, it's, it's, and it could be for any reason. It doesn't mean that's not even a good song. It means that, you know, they may not see the vision of the song at this moment, or that song might need, not, might be exactly right for the thing that they're creating. Um, and um, when you can remove yourself emotionally from the rejection, I think it allows you to, and I don't know that you can remove it a hundred percent because like I said, it still stings, but it allows you to be like, okay, let me see if somebody else wants it. Okay. You don't want this. Let me take it over here and see if somebody else wants it until you find the person that wants it. Yeah. I find that with nose or with rejection, it's often the ego that is, that it hurts. And certainly yes. when I was, when, when I was really young and I, I've definitely done a couple of sales jobs in my time and I really hated nose, <laughs> but I love I love the idea of embracing no's now because yeah, every no is one step closer to a yes. Yes. So you actually need those to get the one yes that you're looking for. Exactly right. Do you have any standout success stories from artists who have gone through your platform and through, you know, into your sync agency? Oh, good question. Um, let's see if I have any standout. We have a number of artists. Um, so we, I do a couple of things. I have, the control camp as a whole, I do have like a coaching group, which is a smaller group within control camp that's um, we do through our Patreon, uh, where I take about 40 um, people and just kind of do hands on career coaching for them. And so within that group, we've had a number who've gotten their um, first placements uh, ever. We have had a few that uh, just this year got um introduced i was able to introduce them to full-time composers and they were brought on you know as to work with that composer you know um for the length of a project uh one of them was it's a reality like a uh one of those extreme sports reality shows uh the composer was scoring all the uh, episodes of the reality show and so he took two of our two of the producers in our group um, and they all worked on like, all the score for the whole season. I think between those producers, they each got like 80 placements as a reason. And this is all just like instrumentals that were, you know, instrumental bids they were creating for the whole season. So we've had that. I've had an, uh, another artist, a couple of artists that have been placed with other major production companies um, that do movie trailers and, you know, big ad shops. Um, so we don't, I don't steer all the musics, like I don't hold all the music specifically for Sustry Music. If another agency or production company, they know I have this community and, they're, and they're, they'll reach out and they'll say, hey, we need, you know, we're looking for, you know, we're looking for R&B artists to work on a particular project. I can make recommendations. Um, and so I've had a couple who have um, not only made projects exclusive with these other production companies, but those projects have gone on to be released and distributed, you know, through the companies, you know, on Spotify and through channels. And one of the artists, Jess, he did the first project with them um, as a 
a, a split. So the agency and them did their splits. And then they just did a second project where they paid him an upfront uh, advance to do another a second exclusive project. So we have a few of those, um, as well as, you know, the placements we've been able to get um, for some of the artists uh, through the agency for commercials as well as TV shows. I imagine that to be super rewarding when you're you know, working with, you know, artists, especially when they're getting their first one, there must be an amazing amount of excitement uh, when they, when they get their first placement. And what about yourself? What's been the most rewarding moment for yourself in sync licensing? I've had a lot of rewarding moments. I mean, control camp itself, sus three, we just, um, we, uh, I'm just getting back from Nashville last week was the Nashville film festival here in the United States. And um, so uh, we were one of the sponsors. This is the very first time Sustry has sponsored any music event. Uh, we were able to um, present an artist, uh, Emma Lee, who uh, was, uh, became known here uh, worldwide, actually, as a contestant on The Voice, the TV show The Voice in 2019. And uh, we have been working with her hands-on to develop like a big catalog for sync and television promos and movie trailers. And so she was the featured artist. She did a whole showcase or closed out a showcase as part of the film festival. So that was a huge moment for us being able to be sponsors and just seeing the reaction of all the supervisors to an artist that we've been working with. But even with all that, I'll say the biggest moment for me probably still goes back to 2016 um, when I worked on the second season of a TV show called Greenleaf, uh, which is a show developed on OWN, and that, that's Oprah Winfrey's network, O-W-N. Uh, this show is probably like the second most popular show on the network, uh, and I got hired to work as a songwriter on the show, and I, one song that I wrote, which was like to demo for the show ended up being used in like five different episodes and about five or six different contexts. It was remixed and just used in a lot of different scenes. And then I got to write with, um, write original songs to some of the other artists on the show whose characters were recording artists. So they needed original music to go into the studio. I got to do vocal production with a lot of the, it was a lot of music in the show. And so I got to do vocal production with the actors as we brought them into the studio. So this was all totally different from any other context. Mostly I was writing most of the, my other placements. I was kind of working isolated in, in my own studio, in my apartment studio, writing songs and kind of presenting them to a third party, you know, that ultimately landed. But to be actually part of the actual television production on set, watching day to day as the show story comes together and being able to dynamically create things for those scenes. That was really, really great. And then one of the songs ended up, the one that was used in all the like five scenes also ended up on the soundtrack um, for that season, which was released. So that was the, probably my um, uh, most rewarding personal experience, I think in my whole sync career. Incredible. And did you meet Oprah? Did you get to meet Oprah in that time? No, I did not meet Oprah. Um, And it's very heartbreaking because I did not, but everybody else on the music team did, except me. Because the one day, she only came to set one day. And that one day that she came to set, 
we didn't know was a surprise. And we knew we were going to set, but the producer who I worked for was like, oh, Eric, we're not doing your songs today. Like, you can take the day off. You don't need to come today. That was the one day I did not come to the set. And it was like, Oprah came through today. So, yeah, that's a very painful moment for me. I, uh, it's it's not good. Well, let's leave that open. Maybe that, that maybe that will happen for a future future series. Yes, maybe it will happen. Eric, it's been fascinating to talk to you today and to learn more about sync licensing. I really think there's a lot of value that you've helped our audience with, and I really hope it's inspired many independent musicians out there to to jump on board. Clearly, you know, do the research. It sounds like it's not something that you can just make money on tomorrow, but it's certainly you know, when if you put in the work, it's certainly a a, a realistic revenue stream that can be created and it sounds like you know there's so much so many talented musicians out there you know from my experience of running open door we meet so many talented musicians from around the world and one of the challenges is making money let's be honest from your own music and it's really difficult with streaming and it's really difficult even with performing so uh, i really hope it's inspired people to get into this world I have a couple of questions left. Okay. What are your top three tips for independent musicians who want to get into this world? Top three tips are, um, one, start listening attentively to television shows, advertisements, and games, and pay attention to how they use um, music. Two, start thinking about how you can create music intentionally for sync before you go into the recording songwriting um, process and three look for ways that you can collaborate with people who are already actively getting sync placements because that's one of the fastest paths to breaking into the industry and i'll add in number four definitely get involved in your education platform control camp it's a brilliant resource and it's obviously a great way to then to learn more about what you're doing and to access that and we will of course put a link to your website in the description of the podcast and final question can you share a valuable piece of advice a bit of wisdom or a mantra that has guided you on your musical journey and may inspire others listening to this podcast i think for me never stopping you know always being willing to learn always um, stay connected, especially for music, stay connected to the music that's being created. Right now, music is always being created and it's its own, um, it's its own energy and it's its own wave. And um, I think if we stay connected to how stories are being told in music, then we have a bigger chance of our own voice um contributing to that story that's being told what's the best way for people to follow what you're up to and to get in touch so definitely come to controlcamp.com ctrlcamp.com and then you can follow more about me on my instagram page which is at eric makes music e-r-i-c-m-a-k-e-s-m-u-s-i-c eric makes music uh, is a great way on Instagram and on Twitter is a great way to, to keep in touch with uh, what I'm sharing. Eric Campbell, thank you so much for joining us here on the Open Door Talks podcast. Hey Lex, thank you. This has been a great convo. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the love and share it with a friend. 
We've also got a Spotify playlist featuring the music from the podcast. So make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources.